full time of the church age. Uh, I believe that that's much of what Revelation is about. Although it does pick up on ideas and images and themes from the Old Testament, we've seen everything from the letters to the seven churches, the throne room of God in Revelation 4 and 5, seeing the wonders of heaven, as it were, that decorate God's presence. And the opening of the scroll, which is, as it were, an expression of God's plan, of His will for judgment and for blessing. Indeed, the whole book of the Revelation is like a blueprint for times past, present, and future. And I want for our time here today for you all to love Jesus Christ more for what He has done for you. Oh, the things that He has done. The the way in which he has elevated his people is such a delight to look at and seeing this, the 144,000 in the sealed of God. I've recently been involved now thinking about uh, blueprints and plans. I've recently been involved in a project where I've been able to look at various plans of work being done. And because of my own experience being a carpenter and remodeling contractor and things like that, I, I am able to look at some plans and imagine at various stages of the progress what it would have been like in the very scene. Okay, this is the foundation plan. This is the framing plan. This is the, like the finished plan with all the other details and stuff like that. And I can imagine, okay, what would a typical day have looked like doing this kind of job? And so, so much work, so much detail, so many elements that go into each part of the plan. Well, what we're looking at here in the book of the Revelation and here in chapter 7 is very much like an architect's plans. Something you could say shows off certain features of God's will as it unfolds. This chapter is very much like that where John sees a vision of the heavenly perspective of the whole of redemption and could see how God imagined, if you will, that God imagined for him his own interpretation of the experience of all his people throughout the church age, a vision of what the church has endured from the beginning of the new covenant. This vision is something of like a recapitulation of what we've already seen of the destructive events and the things going on from Revelation chapter 6. With the, we talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and all of the destruction that takes place there. But this is like a different way of seeing all of that from a different perspective, a recapitulation, if you will, and of what would end up becoming the judgment on all the non-believers in the world. Is, this is a recapitulation because it is kind of going back over the ideas, but you could think of it as something of a pause where John is given a vision of what's going to happen to the believers during the time of what chapter 6 talked about. So you could think of the book of the Revelation in many ways as when, when you hear John or when you read John say, and then I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this, it's not that he is seeing everything in some perfect chronological order. There's the A and then B happens and then C happens and then so on. It's more like imagine you are meeting with a friend and they tell you he had a dream. And let's say he had four dreams overnight. And he says, in the first dream, I was the age that I am right now. 
And then the second dream is the age I was when I was in college. And then the third dream was the age I was when I was in elementary school. And then the fourth dream was the age I am again now. So that what he is telling you is, then I saw this, dream number one, present day. Then I saw this, dream number two, which was in the not too far past. Dream number three was the distant past and so on. So that even though he's telling you, and then I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this, he's not telling you the content of everything happening in some sequential order. Some of it is going back over what he already talked about. That's really very much like what we're seeing here in ch chapter 7. So we see this entire sweep of the new covenant church age, not necessarily some far distant future event, but some of the things that have happened all throughout church history. So we ask the question then, after seeing what Revelation tells us, how does Jesus reward the church after she has suffered? Christ seals and supplies for all his people for their faithful service through the most severe trials and fulfilling all her deepest longings. Let's read Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and the, and the sea, saying, do not harm earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, from the tribe of Simeon, from the tribe of Levi, from the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Zebulun, of Joseph, and of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and for where, from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him night and day in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence." and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them 
to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What an awesome passage. First, let's notice a few details. You see that at the beginning, it says that there were those who were these four angels at the four corners of the earth. That's a very old expression. You've probably heard it before, you know, all the, the four corners of the globe. Uh, that, that's not too difficult to comprehend. It says that we see these standing, and this could be answering the question of chapter 6, verse 17, where at the end of chapter 6 it says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? we'll see that those who are standing are the people of God, which is really something like what Psalm 1-5 says. Remember how it says that the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, but the, the redeemed will. These four angels or winds are best interpreted really as the four horsemen of chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, who are modeled after the horsemen of Zechariah chapter 6, 1 through 8. Maybe put your finger here at Revelation chapter 7 and look back at Zechariah 6 quickly. He says, Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from forth from between the two mountains. The mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses. With the second chariot, black horses. And with the third chariot, white horses. And with the fourth chariot, strong dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, Who are these, my Lord? And the angel replied to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth and standing before the Lord of all the earth. Interesting that here's John picking up on a vision that Zechariah likely was seeing the same thing, described vastly differently than what John saw, but it's modeled at least after that same idea. And it, these were sent to patrol the earth, as you read in Zechariah. These are also these angels who are holding back the four winds, it says in chapter 7, back there in Revelation. The four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and so on. So these would be, as it were, godly angels who are also holding back the destruction that God is going to bring on the earth. Something we thought about this morning in uh, equipping hour with Ezekiel is the seriousness God takes towards sin. And one of the things about this image is the idea that God is calling on these four horsemen, these angels, that are not only going to bring destruction, they are being told to hold that destruction back. Isn't it a wonder that for all of the sins of God's people, it took the death of the Son of God to deal with your sin, to appease the wrath of God against your sins against Him. Imagine the destruction that awaits the people that don't believe in God, that hate Him, that turn their back on Him. Imagine the destruction. If it took the death of God's Son to deal with your sin, how much worse will it be for these people who will receive the wrath of God sent from heaven? God says, unload. Yet, there are these who are standing 
the 144,000 who are sealed. Back in Ezekiel chapter 9, there is the expression that there would be those in the city of Jerusalem who would receive a mark on their foreheads. Those who did not uh, despise God. Let's look back there real quick. Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. There were godly people in the city of Jerusalem who mourned over the sins of the people. And he says to put a mark on them. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. But touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Brothers and sisters, that is a fearful word. That is a frightening idea. And here, as God's people, this 144,000 that is spoken of have this seal. We'll talk more about what that seal is. But I want you to see something. Your Bible indeed may have this list of the tribes bracketed off in your Bible. One of the things you need to notice that, for one thing, all of the tribes of Jacob are actually not listed, and those that are, are out of order of their birth order from Genesis 29 and 30. So, that must mean that this list of tribes that is shown is symbolic in itself. Not only who is listed, but the order in which the names appear. Okay? Now, some think that this is a list of all of the believers that come from the tribes of Israel. Now, that may be the case, but I don't think it's necessary to limit it only to Jews. Because there is a logic going on here that the latter group that we'll see, the great multitude, would have to include these people as well. So it can't just be Jews that are spoken of here, but really a, an expression of all of the people of God. Okay? So um, this multitude in verse 9 and following are Gentiles. Some say that th th this list we see uh, uh, um, in verses uh, 5 through 8, are from the Jews and the rest are Gentiles. But it's not necessary to, to separate it out that way. But this is the thing. Notice this birth order. Judah is listed first. Judah is listed first, but it's interesting because Judah was actually the fourth one born of Jacob's sons. Then you have Reuben, who he was actually the firstborn, but he's listed second. Hmm, that's interesting. Why do we go from Judah, the fourth one, then to Reuben, the first one? Then you have, look here, you have Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh. Well, Manasseh isn't one of Jacob's sons. I mean, he is in a genealogical sense. He was one of his grandsons. He was one of the sons of Joseph, right? Remember that, Manasseh and Ephraim? Well, this is all telling us something is going on here. John is trying to communicate something. Without going into a lot of the detail about the birth order and so on, one of the things that needs to stick in your head here, especially 
Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh is that those were children who were born, except Manasseh, I don't want to confuse people. <laughs> Gad, Asher, and Naphtali were born of the handmaidens or the slave concubines of Leah and Rachel. You remember Jacob fell in love with Rachel. He saw her and was like, wow, I love her. But then kind of a turn of the tables, you know how Jacob was a trickster, right? He, he, uh, he tricked uh, uh, Isaac into giving him the blessing by tricking him, thinking that he was Esau. Well, it was like Laban, who was his uncle, tricked him by having him be with Leah instead of Rachel. So he wakes up in the morning, he's like, what? Who are you? <laughs> uh, well, he knew who she was, but he was like, he didn't, think he didn't think it was going to be her, right? He thought he was having Rachel. So anyway, isn't it interesting that it's through Rachel, not the one that he, or excuse me, through Leah, not the one he loved, but it's through Leah that this tribe of Judah came. Judah is the line from which the Messiah appears. Judah is the one from which Jesus shows up. Back in Revelation chapter 49, or excuse me, Genesis, I got all these books in my head. Genesis 49, Jacob is on his deathbed. He is in Egypt and he pronounces a blessing on all his sons. And so just from uh, chapter 49 of Genesis 8 through 10, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have grown up. He stooped down and crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We understand that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's why he's listed first, if you will. It's like he, this list is like a banner for all the ones that follow. The other thing, though, about this stuff with concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah were these slaves of Leah and Rachel who were kind of like competing moms, if you will. Rachel was jealous that she wasn't able to bear children. God closed her womb. So she says, just kind of like Sarah did with Hagar, sleep with this slave girl and give me a son. The thing about all of this, without going into all the detail about birth order and so on and so on, I want you to pick up on the names of the children. This is fascinating to me. Because in verse 4, Revelation verse 4, it says, And I heard the number of the sealed. And what he heard was, you know what the name Judah means? It means praise. Do you know what Reuben means? It means a son. You know what Gad means? Gad means good fortune. Now, I don't speak Hebrew, but all of these names have significance. And the 144 which come from these tribes, brothers and sisters, this is you. You are from the 12,000 of the tribe of praise from the tribe of a son, from the tribe of happiness, from the tribe of struggle. That's the name Naphtali. 
from the tribe of causing to forget my trouble, from the tribe of the one who is heard, Simeon, from the tribe of the one attached, the priestly tribe, Levi, and on and on. Brothers and sisters, you are from this tribe of the fullness of the people of God. That's what the 144,000 is talking about. It's you realize that the number 12 is significant throughout the Bible. You have the 12 sons of Israel. You have the 12 disciples. You have uh, 12,000 cubits for the, uh, the uh, Holy of Holies in the book of Jerusalem, uh, or, or in the, uh, the, the city of Jerusalem, excuse me, and then and on and on. The 1,000 is like an expression that says fullness and perfection. 12 times 12 times 1,000. 144,000. It's an expression of the fullness of the people of God. The fullness of the people of God are happiness to our Lord. It's a son. You are like the son to God. You are his people who have struggled through a great tribulation. Then in verses 9 through 14, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Notice, these are ones who are a great multitude. This is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was given the promise of having a vast multitude of descendants, more than the stars in heaven. Genesis 15, verse 5. These are ones, notice, it says that they are standing. This is where we see the idea of standing. They are standing in the judgment, not like the wicked. They are before the throne of God and the Lamb. That is, they're standing in the very presence of God clothed in white robes. What does that suggest to you? It's the idea of purity. Having palm branches in their hands. We just went through uh, Palm Sunday. Well, the palms here might be a reference to something all the way back in Leviticus 23, where you had the Feast of the Tabernacles, where God protected the people by having them stay in these little tents while He provided for them, led them, and protected them while they were in the wilderness. And they were told to give praise to God and use palm branches. And it says that they cried, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I would say that this is very much in the way of not just crying out loud, but singing, of singing, of worship. If you move forward a few chapters to chapter 14, look at that, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard the voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These 
have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was no lie was found, for they are blameless. That is the people of God. The persecution and difficulty and the troubles of the whole church age are those that are designed really by Satan as a way of testing you in your faith. God puts his seal on you to protect you from forsaking Jesus Christ, from running away and turning your back on God after all that he has done. You are sealed from forsaking the Lord who purchased you. All of these, then the angels and elders and four living creatures, they fall on their faces in worship and say, Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What, how many are those? How many uh, acclamations do you read there? Let's see. There's one, blessing, two, glory, three, wisdom, four, thanksgiving, five, honor, six, power, seven, might. Seven acclamations of praise. Seven acclamations of wonder and joy directed to the God who sits above, who stands in heaven. You could say it is the perfection of praise offered up from his servants. And when he asks then, who are these clothed in white? This elder tells him, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. Now, we could say that the great tribulation is one final, uh, unbelievable uh, conflagration of persecution and difficulty and trouble toward the end of time, but it need not mean that because these are all of God's people from really throughout the whole church age. They have all experienced some tribulation. It is including all of God's people who from every instance have endured difficulty and suffering, slander and persecution accusation up to and including death. Some of our brothers and sisters, perhaps at this very hour, are giving up their life for the name of Jesus Christ. Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will be persecuted. Do you ever have any persecution? Have you experienced any trials or difficulty from an outsider? Do you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? That's probably why. You must examine yourself. You must understand how serious God takes sin. And indeed, how delighted He is in all of His redeemed. So, these who are clothed in white, it says, they are the ones coming out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Because of your faith, brothers and sisters, in the God who saves you, the Messiah, the one who was promised from all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15, because of your faith in Him, you are protected. You are protected from those things that would cause you to lose your faith. It is indeed something like what 
Daniel saw in J Daniel chapter 12. Looking back there quickly, he says, at, the time, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, 1 and 2. I think it could be that what Daniel was seeing was really a glimpse of the entire New Covenant age. A time when God's people would suffer all through the time of their redemption. It doesn't mean every individual is going to suffer, but we as God's people suffer. We suffer today. And as we endure against persecution and suffering... That's the seal. That's evidence of the seal. That's you standing up against those that would say, eh, just uh, forsake Jesus. Just denounce your faith in Christ and everything will be okay. No. Brothers and sisters, no. Don't you ever do it. Don't you ever do it. And if you have the Holy Spirit, guess what? You won't do it. Their robes are white because they believed on Christ who is the Lamb and have by their faith been purified as they have shared in the sufferings of Christ, who, like their Lord, have endured every kind of evil but without ever denying Him. They know the fellowship of His sufferings and they know the power of His resurrection. Brothers, the Holy Spirit is the seal that has made them new and caused them to persevere in order to identify with Jesus Christ. So, it says then, lastly, verses 15 to 17, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more, nor the sun strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Does this not remind you of some other passage? Of course it does. Revelation 21, 22, the new heavens and the new earth. The very consummation of all that God is doing. One of the things I do, I, I write in my Bible. People who have seen my Bible say I have like 0.01 font when I write my little notes on the side. And one of the things I do like for like every line, if there's enough room in the margin... I'll, I'll write some kind of theological or imagery or some verse that's, you know, picking up on, you know, if you have a reference Bible, that's very helpful. Uh, uh, and so I, I write those things down. And so in this way, similarly here, it says, there, therefore, they are before the throne of God. Well, what is that? They're in His presence right? The presence of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. Well, what does that sound like? What does that remind you of? It's like a priesthood. Remember 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, that you are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, right? It says that He will shelter them with His presence. 
That's protection. They will hunger and thirst no more. What is that? That's provision. The sun or scorching heat, again, protection. The lamb is in their midst. We were looking at Ezekiel this morning, and one of the promises in Ezekiel's prophecy, it comes from chapter 37. We saw a couple of them actually already this morning in chapter 11 and also in 16, where Ezekiel is given a glimpse of this new situation with God and his people. And in chapter 37, it says that God will dwell in the midst of them. He will cleanse us and purify us with water. We'll be given new hearts and all of that. A, a heart of stone removed and a new heart of flesh given to us. That's you, brothers and sisters. That's you. You're sensitive to what God has revealed. It's because of the Holy Spirit in you. That's the seal. And the Lamb will dwell in the midst of you. You will dwell with Him forever. You will enjoy springs of living water. That's everlasting life. That's everlasting life and relief. And God will wipe away every tear. No more pain. No more suffering. In one sense, this is kind of like uh, John's way of this is, I'm going to kind of be a nerd here for a second. This is a way of kind of like what we call a litities. There is hyperbole. I think everybody knows what a hyperbole is. This is kind of like a litities. A litities is like the opposite of a hyperbole. So like if you have a flower vase and it falls off the table and lands on the ground and breaks in five pieces, you go, ah, it broke into a million pieces. No, it didn't. It only broke in five. That's a hyperbole, right? We all know that. But what if that vase really did break into like a million pieces? A litities is like saying, not a few pieces. You see? You're using sort of a negative term to say something positive. In fact, something sort of abundant. I think that's what John is saying here. He says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What does that mean? You will be given joy forever and ever. He'll not just wipe away the tears. Yes, there's a tenderness and a sweetness of our Father's care for us. He will wipe away our tears, but He will cause us to enjoy His presence forever. Imagine this, brothers and sisters. I want your hearts to be lifted up for how greatly the Lord has gifted you. I've been here a long time, and I know almost all of you, and I know most of you very well. And I've heard and seen firsthand some of the difficulties you've gone through. I know some of the troubles that some of you have faced. I really have. And I've wept with you. I've rejoiced with you. And I can tell you on the authority of God's word right here that he is for you. Everything that you have in Jesus Christ is awaiting you. All of the treasures that your heart would ever desire. Not the sinful things, but even in that. Even the sins, the sinfulness that wants to short circuit and cut corners to get at joy, to get at happiness. Every human heart longs for these things. And God has them all in abundance waiting for you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal said it well. He said, all men seek happiness, 
This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it. It is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even to those who would hang themselves. Happiness. Brothers and sisters, happiness is built in. But God is the source of that. He is the source, the means, and the goal of your ultimate happiness. And He will give it to you. Just wait, brothers and sisters. Keep pressing on. Hold on. This is, I see, as the message of Revelation 7. All of these blessings and the whole reality of what awaits God's people is by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Tyler will be symbolically portraying what Christ has done for him. That of the death and new life that Christ has won is going to be appropriated to him. This is what's happened to all of us who, by faith, have followed Jesus Christ. His baptism is a confession, a public proclamation, an outward expression of his union with Jesus Christ, where he will be visibly plunged into the water, symbolizing death, and being raised to newness of life is an outward expression of an inward reality for him. So that all the rich treasures of the depths of Christ's reward belong to Tyler and to all the brothers and sisters who we get to enjoy and witness what we'll see here today. God bless you, brothers and sisters. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks for your mercies to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are God and not ourselves. We fear before you because of your holiness and your wrath against sin. Lord, help us that we would reach our neighbors, our family, our friends, that you by your spirit would seal them unto the day of redemption. God, we love you and thank you. We thank you for all of the rejoicing and joy that awaits us to be in your presence, to serve you day and night, to enjoy your tender care and your comfort to us. Lord, bless your people this day, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, Adam. I invite you all to stand as we respond to this message from Revelation. We read in the, today's passage that a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages,